Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Let's turn again, if you will, to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. As we continue our study in joy in Jesus Christ, joy in Jesus Christ. My conviction has always been that God's greatest joy is to find His people finding their joy in Him. God's greatest joy is to see His people finding their greatest joy in Him. And I believe that our greatest joy is to experience the fullness and the wonder and the awesomeness and the power and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ in us. I believe that's our greatest joy as well. We have a lot in our world that tries to steal that joy away from us. A lot of tension nowadays, a lot of, uh, a lot of anger, a lot of violence, a lot of wrangling, a lot of people crossways with each other, folks not getting along, people doing their dead level best act like kindergartners out on the playing play field, play yard wrestling over toys and we've reduced ourselves in many ways to this kind of lifestyle I do believe that For some people, their spiritual gift is anger and contentiousness and bitterness and resentment. But that's not what God would have us to experience in our lives. That's not what God desires for us to be occupied with on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church. And in this letter he expresses the fullness of his joy in this group of Christians who have found the secret to living a joyful life in a sin-sick world. They found the key. And the Apostle Paul rejoices in this. The Apostle Paul is just beyond himself in expressing what great joy he has in his heart because they have found the answer to life's greatest need. I want us to look at these verses again. Philippians chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 3. 
and we'll read through verse 11. And I want you to hear not only the words of the Apostle Paul, but the tone, the attitude, the emotion that is included in this letter. He says, I thank my God, Philippians chapter 1, look in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is not only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. We ask his blessing upon the reading of his word. It is our Lord's desire, it is our Lord's desire that all of his pastors and his people strive for spiritual growth and maturity, to strive for spiritual growth and maturity. And his desire is that this striving for spiritual growth and maturity will affect every area of our lives, in our personal lives, our family lives, our vocational lives, in our church life, and in our community life. It is God's desire that we grow in Christ-likeness, to be more like Jesus Christ and less like ourselves. Paul's desire for the Philippian church, as expressed here, was such that he earnestly and he fervently and he continually prayed for this to transpire in them. For the Philippian Christians to continue to grow and to mature in their walk with Jesus Christ. Now this was not... Only his desire for the Philippian Christians, it was also his desire for the Christians in the province of Galatia. Chapter 4 and verse 19, he says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. In other words, until Jesus Christ is completely and fully resident in your life. For the Ephesian saints, his desire was in chapter 4 and verse 13 that they would come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. The word perfect means mature. 
to a mature person to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Paul wanted the Ephesian Christians, another church that he was proud of, he wanted the Ephesian Christians to know the magnitude of the joy that was theirs in Christ Jesus as they pursued the Lord Jesus Christ in every area of their life, every area of their being. He stated to the Colossian church that his desire was that they may be presented every man perfect. That again means mature in Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 verse 28. Paul's desire as a pastor, Paul's desire as an evangelist, Paul's desire as an apostle, Paul's desire as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ was to do all that he could to encourage Christian people everywhere to grow in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord, to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in faith and in spiritual maturity. But he wasn't the only apostle who had such a desire. The apostle Peter echoes that same desire in his letter to the Christians who are scattered throughout all of Asia Minor in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He said that his desire was for them to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you this morning, my friends, this is where we begin in our striving, if you will, to release that joy in our lives. Number one, you have to have a desire for it. And, and sad to say, there are some Christians who don't have any desire for that. There, there are some who name the name of Jesus Christ. Their only concern is that they have their fire insurance. You know, that they'll go ahead and live their lives the way they want to live their lives, uh, hoping and praying that when this life is over, they'll go on to be to heaven, they'll skip hell. And that's all salvation is for them, is simply fire insurance. But that's not the desire of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and for me. His desire is that we will know the fullness of His joy in us. And you have to desire that. That's, that's the jumping off point. You have to desire that for yourself. You have to desire that for fellow Christians. You've got to want it, and you've got to want it for other folks. But then there are some practical things that accompany this desire, if that's to happen, if that's to take place in your life and in my life. And so I want us to explore how this fullness of the joy of Jesus Christ is achieved in our individual lives and in our collective lives as a family and as a church. I want us to explore how a Christian grows and matures spiritually to be a joyful servant of the Lord, no matter where he's at, no matter where she's at, no matter what you're doing, that you will be a joyful Christian, 
that you will know the joy of the Lord in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit, in your soul. And so I want us to look, first of all, at some of the patterns of, of growing spiritually. Some of the patterns of growing spiritually. We, we have two specifically stated in Scripture. First of all, in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I want you to look at that passage of Scripture. You're going to turn right to the book of James, chapter 1, starting in verse 2. And looking at verse 3 and 4, James chapter 1, verse 2, 3, and 4. Notice what the Apostle James says. Count it all joy. Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James urges us, James urges us to face trials and temptations. Not to run from them in fear of failure, but to face them head on. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ that as we face these trials and as we encounter these temptations, we will be determined to gain the victory by trusting in the Lord. And the end result, as James says, the end result is knowing that you will be perfect, that is, mature, that you will be complete, that is, whole, and that you will lack nothing in your life as a Christian. Now, I don't like confrontation. I know there are some people who enjoy confrontation, but I I never have liked confrontation. I certainly don't like confrontation with Satan. I certainly don't like confrontation with trials and with temptations. But James encourages me and he encourages each and every one of us that when Satan comes knocking at the door, open the door. Face the trials. Face the temptations. But don't face them alone. Face them in the power and in the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Face the challenge. Seek the victory. Be determined in your spirit to stand against the enemy, knowing that you're standing in Christ Jesus and that in Christ Jesus you will gain the victory. And by gaining the victory, you will become more and more mature in your spiritual life. Then the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 8, a very familiar passage of Scripture to all of us, he encourages us to be empowered in the strength and in the ability of the Lord. He encourages us to take on the full armor of God. But not just put on the full armor of God, he also encourages us to take a stand against the enemy. 
And not only does he encourage us to put on the full armor of God and to take a stand against the enemy, he asks us, he encourages us, even he demands us to do everything we can to remain standing. To do all, he says, to do all to stand. Now I know Satan is powerful. And I know there's not a single individual in here or all of us collectively that can stand eyeball to eyeball and toe to toe with Satan. But he doesn't ask us to do this in the flesh. He asks us to do this in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit of God who empowers us and in the full armor of God that protects us. But we have to put the armor on. We have to take a stand and we have to do everything we can to remain standing in Him. These are just two patterns that are given to us in Scripture on the developing of spiritual maturity in our lives. But coming back to Philippians chapter 1, go back there if you will please, Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul reveals in verses 9, 10, and 11, he reveals five components to spiritual growth. Five components to spiritual growth and maturity in the Lord. Let's look at the passage again. Philippians 1 starting in verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. In this prayer of his for the Philippian Christians, he lists five components, five elements, five principles, five activities that need to be evident in a person's life if they are to press on to spiritual maturity in Christ. The first one that he mentions is an abounding love. An abounding love. That is, an abundant love. An overflowing love that leads to complete knowledge and spiritual perception or spiritual understanding. And when we deal with this next Sunday, we'll understand that this abiding love, this abounding love, this overflowing love is directed toward God, it's directed toward others. To have a love that is overflowing in your heart for God and overflowing in your heart for other people and that leads you to spiritual knowledge and understanding. The second one is excellence. Moral excellence. And that's to be able to discern what is righteous and what is not righteous. To determine what is right and what is wrong. I'm fully convinced, my friends, that the vast majority of the leadership in this country doesn't understand the difference between right and wrong. They can't identify what is right and what is wrong. Every day uh, I listen to people talk and I read the news and I, uh, I, you know, I, I hear what people are saying about what's going on inside the Beltway, what's going on inside Sacramento, and it seems to me like most of our leaders have lost their minds. Right is now wrong and wrong now right. And you know where that comes from? 
godlessness. They have forsaken God. The Apostle Paul makes this very clear in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18 and following, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and they have exchanged the incorruptible God for things that are corruptible, for for idols, for uh, all, all kinds of things that have taken God's place in their lives and in our culture, in our society. We have become a godless people. And because we've become a godless people, we don't know right from wrong anymore. But the Apostle Paul says spiritual maturity comes when people have expressed and experienced moral excellence an understanding of what is right and what is wrong and, and, and expressing that in their own lives. There's a third thing, sincerity. Ethical sincerity. And this simply means to be pure and to be transparent and to be without malice in all things. To be pure, that means to be clean, spiritually cleansed. It means to be transparent not hiding anything, not, not trying to cloak uh, intentions or motives or those other kinds of things, but to be fully transparent and, and to not harbor anger or malice or resentment or bitterness as an individual. The fourth thing is righteousness, to do what is right in God's eyes. To do what is right in God's eyes. To demonstrate righteousness in every area of life. To do what is right in God's eyes with your finances. To do what is right in God's eyes with your relationships. To do what is right in God's eyes in your employment. To do what is right in God's eyes in, in your community affairs. To do what is right in God's eyes in your family life. In your private life. Righteousness. And then the final one is glory. To bring honor and praise to the Lord God in everything. To bring honor and praise to the Lord God in everything. These five elements, the Apostle Paul says, in my prayers, I pray these things for you. I pray these things for you. Now, when we get into this, starting next Sunday, when we get into this, we're going to find that each component is foundational to the next component. The mastery of one takes us to the next level of the other. And when, it is that, when that is mastered, then we go on to the next level, then we go on to the next level, and then we go on to the next level. Each component is foundational to the next, and each is dependent upon the previous one. So it's like building blocks. You take the block of love. You take the block of righteousness. You take the block of, uh, of uh, glory. All of these blocks and you put them all together. One on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other. Until you reach the ultimate goal. So in other words, the epitome of spiritual growth is to be able to praise and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ in every area of your life. That's the goal. That's the final and the ultimate goal in spiritual growth and maturity. But that cannot be achieved 
It cannot be achieved until we exercise righteousness, starting from the goal and going backwards. It cannot be achieved apart from righteousness, which is dependent upon being spiritually pure and transparent, which looks back upon that which is right and turning away from that which is wrong, which results from spiritual knowledge and understanding that is the result of an overflow of God's love in our heart. Each leads to the next. Each is dependent on the previous. Now, in speaking to new Christians, when someone comes and commits their life to Jesus Christ, I outline five important activities for that new Christian to engage in so that their foundation in Jesus Christ is fixed and secure. I outline five activities that a new Christian is to engage in so that their foundation in Jesus Christ is fixed and secure. And those five activities are prayer, Bible study, worship, fellowship with other Christians, and sharing your faith with others. If you want your foundation in Jesus Christ to be firm and fixed and secure... You must be involved in prayer, in Bible study, in worship, in fellowship with other Christians, and in sharing your faith with other people. But the five elements of spiritual growth and maturity are what we build on that foundation. These five elements here in verses 9 through 11 are what we build on that firm foundation of Bible study and prayer and and Christian fellowship and worship and witnessing to other individuals. And as we build on that foundation, our joy in the Lord, our spiritual maturity is heightened, it's broadened, it's deepened as God intends for it to be. Now, the Philippian Christians had already firmly established their spiritual foundation in the Lord through prayer and Bible study and worship and in fellowship with other Christians and in witnessing to other people of the power and the glory and the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this, Paul greatly rejoiced. He expressed his joy for them fixing that foundation firmly in their very lives. But he writes this letter with a desire to build upon that foundation so that their spiritual maturity would lead them to ultimately glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that they do, everything that they are, everything that they do. And notice what he wrote here. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. That was his desire, that they would continue to grow and grow and grow and grow to spiritual maturity. Most Christians would say that that's a lot to remember 
And it's a lot to do. I mean, Bible study all the time, yeah. Prayer all the time, yeah. Worship, yeah. Fellowship with other Christians, yep. Sharing your faith with other people, uh-huh. Loving God with all of your heart and loving others, yeah. Discerning between what is right and wrong, doing what is right, turning away from what is wrong, uh-huh. Being pure in heart and in spirit and transparent without any negative motives or intents, yeah. Being filled with the fruit of righteousness, doing all things that are right in the eyes of God, yeah. Praising and honoring the Lord God in my life in every way, every day, sure. That's a lot to remember and that's a lot to be doing. Yes, it is, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is what we're called and what we're saved to do. This is why Jesus died on a cross and rose again. And this is why the Holy Spirit has called you to the cross so that you might be saved in Him. We are called and we're saved to have this kind of lifestyle. We're not here to bide our time until we go to heaven. Nor are we called to live our lives as best we can. We are called to live the Christ life. We are called to follow Jesus. We are called to serve Him in every area of our lives. We are to live for him who died and rose again for us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Turn back to 1 Corinthians and look at chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 23. Now understand, please that the Apostle Paul is writing to a troubled church. The church in Corinth was not a spiritually stellar church. Uh, it would be a very popular church today, but it wasn't a very popular church to the Lord Jesus Christ, nor to the Apostle Paul when he wrote this letter. He's writing to a church that is embroiled in sinful activity. He is writing to a church that is selfish and self-centered. He's writing to a church that doesn't care about the things of God, a, a church that only cares about their own things. He's writing to a church that is so tore up, so blinded by sin, that the very spiritual life is being sucked out of them. It is a dying church. And it is dying because they have left off living for Jesus and have put on living for themselves. And he writes to this church, using himself as an example, in verse 24, chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race, excuse me, chapter 23, chapter 9, verse 23. I do all things. 
I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. He sets the example. This is how we ought to live. Everything that I do, I do for the cause of Christ. I do for the exaltation of the gospel. I do for the furtherance of the work of the kingdom. I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race, all of them run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they then do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we and imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet, I beat my body, I discipline my body and make it a slave lest possibly after I have preached to others I myself should be disqualified. Paul says, look, as Christians we are called In the race of life, we are called to demonstrate in every area of our lives excellency, discipline, self-control for the things of God and not for the things of the world. In Philippians chapter 3, we're in that book, so let's turn back to it. Philippians chapter 3, in verses 13 through 16. Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. He says, brethren, so he's talking to Christians. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Laying hold of what? What would you suppose that he is talking about having laid hold of? Spiritual maturity. He hasn't attained full spiritual maturity. He's on the road. He's working toward it. But he hasn't attained it yet. I haven't attained it. Or have already become perfect. Again, mature. But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, that is, mature, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Paul says, I'm on my way. I haven't arrived at the ultimate goal yet, but I am on my way. And what I need to do in order to stay focused is I need to lay aside everything that takes my focus away from the Lord, anything that hinders me, anything that trips me up, anything that, that comes into my pathway that would cause me to stumble and to fall. I remove those things. I get them out of my way. And I like what he says in verse 13 because here's where a lot of Christians really have a major problem. Paul says in verse 13, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, what? I forget what lies behind. And Christians have a major problem with this. 
We really, really do. I have yet to see a runner in a track meet. I have yet to see a runner in a track meet win the race by constantly looking behind him. I have yet to see a basketball player score the two points or the three points when his eyes are always fixed on the opponent's goal. Paul says, I don't look behind at what has been. I look forward to what will be. Christians need to refocus their eyes. We need to stop looking behind at all of the things that we have done, all of the sins that I've committed, all of the horrible things that I've said, all of the relationships that I, I messed up, all of, the, all of the doubts and all of the fears and all of this and all of the junk that was in my life. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think of those things all the time. I, I talk about those things all the time. I can't seem to distance myself from those things. Yes, you can. You just choose not to. Listen, dear friends, when Jesus died on the cross, get this and understand this, when Jesus died on the cross, your sins, my sins, were nailed to that cross. And when Jesus died, he took those sins away from us. He took the judgment of God away from us. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he doesn't see that sin anymore. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Our Wednesday night Bible study, we're going through the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 10, by this we have been sanctified. By this we have been sanctified. And just look at that. To be sanctified is to be cleansed. It's, it's to be purified. It is to grow in Christ. Now it's a process. It is positional, but it's also a process. Because note what he says here, I have been. That's past tense. I have been sanctified. God has declared me holy. Huh? Are you a Christian this morning? Are you a Christian this morning? Then understand, when you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you received him into your life, God declared you to be holy. And whatever sins you've committed in your life are gone. God does not see that sin anymore. He doesn't see that sinful past anymore. He has declared you holy. And when God looks upon you, he sees you as a saint. He sees you as a holy person. I have been sanctified, the apostle says in Hebrews 10.10. 10. By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, not to be repeated, can never be repeated again. 
And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, speaking of Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The picture here is he has finished the work. And so he has sat down. The job has been completed. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. I have been sanctified. You have been sanctified. It's what the Apostle Peter, what the Apostle Paul was talking to these Christians in Philippi all about. I don't look back at all the junk, the spiritual junk, the immorality, the unethical behavior, the bitterness, the anger, the resentment, all of the things that were sin in my life. I do not look back on those things. I look forward to the mark of the prize of the high calling in Jesus Christ. Our trouble, dear friends, is that we're too preoccupied with looking back and not occupied enough looking forward. And that's why some of us don't grow spiritually. That's why we do not mature spiritually. We're too busy looking at yesterday and not busy looking at tomorrow. I do not regard myself, he says, as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's my focus. That's my goal. I want my life to be a praise and a glory and an honor to Jesus Christ. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude and so forth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll close. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. This is Paul's last known correspondence that we have intact. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. How many of you have been in the military? Yeah. How many of you have been a spouse or a child of someone in the military? You know that military folks, well, they used to be, I would pray and hope that they are today, they are trained, they are disciplined to focus on the object of their active service. And they're instructed not to become, not to compromise their loyalty to their commanders by getting entangled in the affairs of other areas of life. Their focus is on their military service. No soldier is 
in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, some of you have been athletes as well, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer, some of you are farmers, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. These examples encourage us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That is, with an anxiousness to compete and to complete. Fear does not mean to tremble and to hide and to cower. It means to have an anxious spirit to get on with it. And trembling. The idea here is not again to cower and to shake and to quake in fear. It means there is such a, an anxiousness in you that you can't sit still. I want to get to the task. I want to get on with it. I want to move ahead. I can't sit still. I can't stay where I'm at. I want to press on. Work out your salvation with that kind of an attitude in your mind and in your heart. On the track team in high school, I was signed up to run the half mile. That's twice around a regulation-sized football field. Each lap around the track is a 220, twice around is a 440, a full mile is an 880. For weeks, I ran around the track for hours for weeks, I ran around the track for hours, building up my wind, strengthening my stamina, learning to pace myself. I was anxious for the upcoming track meet. First time I'd ever run in a track meet, and I was running a half mile. I wanted to run. I wanted to compete. I wanted to honor my school. I wanted to honor my coach because my coach thought that I could run the race well. The day of the track meet came. I couldn't sit still, waiting for the time of my event. I was nervous. I was anxious. I wanted to get on with it. I couldn't sit in the bleachers and watch the other Participants, the other athletes do their thing. I wanted to get on the track. I wanted to run my race. The time came when they called the half milers to the track, and myself and about 20 other individuals from various other schools in our district, we came to the track and we positioned ourselves accordingly. The guns sounded. And the moment that the gun sounded, there was only one thing on my mind, and that was the finish line. The finish line. At the end of the first lap, one time around the track, I was dead last. I was dead last. My teammates, who were all on the infield and around the outfield, they were encouraging me. They were screaming at me. They were yelling at me to kick it, to turn on the afterburners, 
to get busy and to run the race. I remember vividly my friend Rod Fuller, who's also a runner, was on the infield and and he followed me around the infield and he was yelling at me, man, you can do this, you can do this. Come on, kick it, kick it, get in there. I quickened my pace. I shut everything out of my mind. I closed my ears to everything that was going on around me. I didn't look to see who or what was ahead of me. I certainly didn't look to see who or what was behind me. My focus was on running the race. And before I knew it, the race was over. I finished second out of 20 runners and just a second or two behind the first place winner. I trained. I disciplined myself. I did what my coach instructed me to do to get ready for the race and it seemed like the race was over like that. The goal of the Christian life is to become spiritually mature. Those whom he predestined, those whom he called, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's spiritual maturity. We're to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. To glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in everything we think, say, and do. We have to train for that. We have to train for that. We have to focus on that. We don't cross the finish line without spending time and effort and discipline, without getting into the race and running that race with all that we are and all that we have. You don't attain spiritual maturity by osmosis. You train, you work, you strive for it. The prophet, the apostle wrote in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what Jesus was about. And that's what he wants us to be about. And so we're going to explore these five components of spiritual maturity over the next five Sundays. I pray that you will join with us in this study. And it is my heart's desire for you, as it was Paul's heart's desire for the Philippians, to build upon the foundation you have in Jesus Christ, the foundation of prayer and Bible study and worship and witness and fellowship, to build upon that foundation these five elements so that you can grow into spiritual 
maturity. Let's stand together. Sean is going to come and lead us in a song as we are dismissed. Sean, if you will, please. And thank you for doing this in David's absence. We appreciate it very much. of our lips, but it may also be the motive and the intent of our heart to live for you, fully surrendered to all that you would have us to become in Christ Jesus. To his honor and to his glory I ask, in the name of our Lord and all of God's people said, The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on Him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to Him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.